بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له ونشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى اله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا اما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ان الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا ايها الذين امنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما صليت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما باركت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد respected listeners we gather for the third part of the commentary of the famous hadith from sahih al-bukhari known as the hadith of heraclius I won't provide a summary of what we've covered so far. Rather what I'll do is I'll quickly translate the hadith from the beginning and that will familiarize us once again with the actual story. So Imam Bukhari rahmatullahi alayhi says he, he, he records a narration from Abdullah ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhuma Abdullah ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhuma says that Abu Sufyan informed him that Heraclius sent for him amongst a group of amongst a caravan of the Quraysh <coughs> and they were traders in Sham during that period in which Prophet Allah's messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam had agreed a truce with Abu Sufyan and the unbelievers of the Quraysh so they came to him whilst they were in Elia which means Jerusalem so he summoned them to his gathering and around him were the dignitaries of Rome he then called them and called for his translator and then said who of you is the closest in lineage to this man who claims to be who claims that he is a prophet so abu sufyan said i told him that i am the closest of them meaning of the caravan to this man in lineage so heraclius said bring him close to me and draw his companions closer to and then place them behind him then he told his interpreter say to tell them that i am about to question this man meaning abu sufyan about this man meaning the one who claims to be a prophet so if he abu sufyan lies to me then you reject him so abu sufyan says by allah if it wasn't for the shame that they would quote a lie from me 
I would have surely lied against him, meaning the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Then, of the first of what he asked me was that he said, how is his lineage amongst you, his pedigree, his ancestry? I said, he is amongst us a man of great lineage. So he replied, Heraclius replied, that has anyone amongst you ever said the same thing before him? So Abu Sufyan said, I replied, no. Heraclius then asked, were any of his ancestors kings? So Abu Sufyan said, no. Heraclius then asked, so do the nobility follow him? Or the weak amongst the people. So I replied, nay, they're weak ones. So Heraclius then asked, do they increase in number or do they decrease? I said, nay, rather they increase. This is where we stopped last week. So, as you, as you know, as Abu Sufyan, radiyallahu an says, that during that period wherein the truce was agreed, in fact, at the beginning part of that period, maybe the late 6th year of Hijrah, or the early part of the 7th year of Hijrah, Abu Sufyan, taking advantage of that truce, he took a large caravan of approximately 30 traders to Sham, and they were in the port city of Gaza at the time. And they were engaged in trade, Prior to this, Heraclius had come to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage in order to pay homage and to show gratitude to, to God for having granted him victory over the Sasanid Persians with whom the Byzantine Roman Empire, of, whom, of which Heraclius was the current emperor, had been engaged in centuries of warfare, actually, on and off. And recently there had been about a very intense and severe fighting in which Heraclius, the Byzantines under the leadership of Heraclius had suffered many defeats and then the tables were turned and eventually they, were, they became victorious over the Persians. So in order to pay homage and show gratitude to God, he had made a pilgrimage on foot to Jerusalem. There he had received news of the Prophet from the Ghassanid king who was his vassal and ally. And then further to that, he also received a letter from Rasulullah inviting him to Islam. Heraclius read the letter and having read the letter, he wished to inquire further about, this, about the Prophet So it was then that he told his soldiers to send out search parties all over the kingdom, all over the Byzantine Roman Empire to see if they could find anyone who was of the same people and who had more information about this person who claimed prophethood. So this is when his soldiers arrived in Gaza and found Abu Sufyan with the trade caravan. They, they hauled them back to Jerusalem. There they were seated before Heraclius and he began 
interrogating Abu Sufyan. Now, do remember at the time, Heraclius was at the zenith of his power. He was the most powerful ruler in the known world at the time. Although the Sassanid Persian Empire and the, and the Byzantine Roman Empire were considered the two superpowers of the time, as of late, just recently, Heraclius had proved to be victorious and he had vanquished the Sassanid Persians. So he was the undisputed mighty ruler of the most powerful empire in the known world at the time. So Abu Sufyan was summoned before him, seated, and he was interrogated by Heraclius about the Prophet ﷺ. Heraclius asked him ten questions in total, and five of them we covered last week. And the five which he asked were that, what is his lineage amongst you? How is his lineage? And then he carried on. We'll go over the questions again because they will come in the reply and the analysis of Heraclius. So the last question, the fifth one where we left off was, he said to Abu Sufyan that the followers of this man, do they increase in number or, or do they decrease? So he said, nay, rather they increase. Abu Sufyan then asked, قال, فَهَلْ يَرْتَدُّ أَحَدٌ مِّنْهُمْ سَخْطَةً لِدِينِهِ بَعْدَ أَنْ يَدْخُلَ فِيهِ Do any of them, meaning the followers of this person, this claimant to prophethood, do any of them abandon their religion after having entered into it and embraced it? سَخْطَةً out of displeasure. So... Abu Sufyan said, Qult. I replied, La, no. Qal, so Heraclius said, فَهَلْ كُنْتُمْ تَتَّهِمُونَهُ بِالْكَذِبِ قَبْلَ أَنْ يَقُولَ مَا قَالْ So would you ever accuse him of lying before he said whatever he said? So that was the seventh question. The sixth question was, do any of them once they've embraced the religion and entered into it, Islam, do any of them abandon their religion out of spite, out of displeasure, or becoming disgruntled and disillusioned? So Abu Sufyan said no, and indeed that was the case. The Sahaba radiyallahu anhum in Makkah al-Mukarramah, despite all the troubles they faced, despite the persecution even the physical torture, the verbal, emotional, and physical abuse, and sometimes even murder. The Sahaba anhum remained steadfast, despite the fact that one, they were of the lower class, most of them, because his question that do the nobility follow this man, or the weak ones, so Abu Sufyan said the weak ones, and as I explained last week, this was as far as the majority was concerned. Otherwise there were people of the nobility, the leading members of the Quraysh, Abu Bakr al-Siddiq, Uthman ibn Affan, Umar ibn al-Khattab, Ali ibn Abi Talib, radiyallahu anhum ajma'in. And these were all early believers, and apart from them, there were many 
of the leading nobles of the Quraysh, but they were in a minority. The wealthy, the affluent, the well-off, the powerful, the aristocracy and the nobility, as they regarded themselves, on the major part, as a majority, they were the principal opponents of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and I'll explain more about this later. So despite being of the weaker class, they were the most steadfast. And even though they were persecuted, tortured, and some of them were even murdered, as I explained about the family of Ammar ibn Yasir radiyallahu anhum, despite all of this, they remained steadfast on their religion. And none of them ever became disillusioned. Even Ammar ibn Yasir radiyallahu anhu. Subhanallah, he, he was tortured and he had witnessed his father and mother being killed and under torture he told them what they wanted to hear. They then released him. Ammar ibn Yasir radiyallahu anhu was utterly distraught. And in a moment of weakness, as he saw it, in a moment of weakness, under immense pressure, under physical torture, after having witnessed the torture of his own parents, he uttered words which they saw as a victory and which suggested that he wasn't, he was no longer a member of the Muslim community. He no longer believed as he should believe. But he said that in pressure under physical torture. And he instantly repented and regretted. And he was under compulsion. But he was utterly distraught. He sought the Prophet ﷺ's forgiveness, the Sahaba anhum's forgiveness. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed verses of the Quran. Except one who is compelled, but even under compulsion, وَقَلْبُهُ مُطْمَئِنٌ بِالْإِيمَانِ His heart is content with faith. So, Ammar ibn Yasir radiyallahu was, that was overlooked. So, even under torture and pressure, they did not become disillusioned with their newfound faith. And as I said, I'll say more about this, more about this later. Then, Heraclius asked Abu Sufyan that would any of you accuse this man, meaning the Prophet Muhammad of lying? Ever before, did you ever accuse him of lying before he said what he said? So Abu Sufyan said, no. I replied, no. And indeed, Prophet was known to his people he was known as Al-Amin. And this is widely reported. This isn't a single report or an isolated report. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was regarded as As-Sadiq, Al-Amin, the truthful, the honest, and the trustworthy one. We covered in the commentary of the Hadith of Hijrah, emigration, that Virtually all the Muslims had left. And this was 13 years after prophethood. The only people who remained behind were the mustad'afun, 
the oppressed weak ones, those who had no kin, no family, no means, no support and no ability to emigrate. There were some. And the only other ones who were capable of doing hijrah, of emigrating, but had not yet embarked on that journey, were Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu an and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and members of their family. The family of Abu Bakr radiyallahu an and the family of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. They were the only ones who hadn't done hijrah. And then even when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam under great pressure fearing for his life he secretly left Mecca in the company of Abu Bakr radiyallahu an he gave instructions to Ali radiyallahu an to remain behind and to ensure that all the items of trust that were deposited by the people of Mecca with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, they were safely returned to their owners. And that was when his own life was at risk. So even after Islam, though the nobility opposed the messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam, Others may not have accepted his faith. They didn't believe in him. They didn't accept his message. But they still trusted him as an individual in worldly terms. And they continued to deposit their items of trust with him. And true to his honesty and his integrity, Rasulullah even when facing personal danger and the risk of death, he ensured that those items of trust were returned to them. And that was 13 years after he declared prophethood. But prior to his declaring prophethood, universally, without exception, all the people of Mecca, leaders and laity alike, young and old, men and women, the powerful and the weak, the rich and the poor, all of them regarded the Prophet ﷺ in a very unique manner. They, tr- they believed him to be a sadiq, the truthful, al-ameen, the trustworthy one. And five years before prophethood, five years before <coughs> announcing prophethood, in the 35th year of his life, the Kaaba had become damaged because of excessive rain and a flood storm. The foundations had become damaged and, well, the foundations had become weak. The walls were about to collapse. So the Quraysh agreed amongst themselves to rebuild the Kaaba. But they were very fearful. Eventually, they rebuilt it. They ensured, they swore a vow, and they had a pact, despite their rivalries, that we will collectively build the Kaaba, they considered it a thing of honor. Furthermore, they said, we will only build the Kaaba out of our halal income. Even though they were pagans, they, to some degree, recognized and guarded the sanctity of the house of Allah. So they said, only our halal income will be used to rebuild the Kaaba. This is why their funds fell short. When their funds fell short, they were unable to reconstruct the Kaaba on its original foundations because they had reduced the walls and the entire building to its foundations. So the Kaaba was actually rectangular rather than a cube. 
So they built the house short because of the lack of funds and they marked out the broken part or the remaining part of the Kaaba with a lower wall and with other markings. It was a semicircle which they then regarded as the Hatim. And one of the meanings of Hatim is the broken one. It's Hatim bima'na mahtum. Fa'il bima'na maf'ul for those of you who are students of Arabic. So Hatim means a broken one. So that was the broken section of the Kaaba. That's how they built it, because they fell short of funds. And they also made some other changes. There was a door which was lower. There was a door for entry and a door for exit at opposite ends. And both of them were lowered to the ground. But after that point, what they did is they raised the door of the Kaaba and they sealed one door. So there was the same door for entry and for exit. And it was raised high above the ground so that they could control whom they would allow to enter the Kaaba and whom they would prevent. So they made these changes. Rasulullah sallallahu intended to rebuild the Kaaba on the foundations of Sayyidina Ibrahim salam. And he told Ummul Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha that if it wasn't for the fact if it wasn't for the fact that, that your people, meaning the Quraysh, are so close to their days of jahiliyyah, meaning they have only recently embraced Islam, this is something they will not be able to tolerate. If it wasn't for that fear, I would rebuild the Kaaba on the foundations of Ibrahim But he didn't. Subhanallah. Look at the wisdom of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. It was his desire to rebuild the Kaaba in the manner that it existed before. And on the foundations of Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam. And that meant extending it so that it covered the Hatim part and it was once again rectangular. Which the Quraysh were unable to do because of the lack of funds. Halal and pure funds. And the Prophet ﷺ intended to lower the door again, have one for entry, and reopen the other door again at ground level for exit. But he didn't do it because he feared the reaction of the Quraysh, not all of them, but some of them, who had only recently left Jahiliyyah and entered into Islam. After the Prophet ﷺ passed away, the Abdullah ibn Zubayr radiyallahu an, approximately, well, over half a century later, he decided, when he was in control of Makkah al-Mukarramah, he was the son of Asma bin Abi Bakr radiyallahu an, he was a nephew of Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha, who is a narrator of this hadith, and to whom the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said this. So Abdullah ibn Zubayr radiyallahu an, the son of Asma bin Abi Bakr, and the son of... Zubayr ibn al-Awwam. Abdullah ibn Zubayr radiyallahu an, when he was in control of Makkah al-Mukarramah, and he was declared the Khalifa of not just the region of Makkah, but other regions, he rebuilt, he raised, he built the Kaaba according to the wishes of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. The Banu Umayyah, the Umayyads, who regarded Abdullah ibn Zubayr radiyallahu an as a rebel, 
And they fought against him. They laid siege to Mecca. They, because in, during their siege, they even damaged the Kaaba. And they eventually captured Abdullah ibn Zubayr radiallahu an, And he was brutally killed. Uh, then the Banu Umayyah, merely out of spite, since they did not want the same Kaaba that Abdullah ibn Zubayr radiallahu an, whom they regarded as a rebel, they raised it to the ground and rebuilt it in the manner of the Quraysh. Then, after the Banu Umayyah, when the Umayyads were removed from power approximately after one third, well, approximately 130 years after Hijrah, this was another, over another half century after the rebuilding of the Kaaba of uh, the Banu Umayyah. The Banu Umayyah, when they were removed from power, the Banu Abbas, they came to power, the Abbasids. So the Abbasid Khulafa, when they were in full control and they had consolidated their power over the expanding Islamic realm, the Khulafa, the caliphs of the Abbasid Empire, they also intended to rebuild the Kaaba according to the wishes of the Prophet ﷺ, and they wished to undo what Banu Umayyah did. So, may Allah have mercy on the ulama of Islam. Uh, ulama advised the Banu, uh, the Banu al-Abbas, the Abbas al-Khulafa, and prominent amongst them was the student and companion of Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, Imam Abu Yusuf, rahimahullah, who was the first chief judge of Islam. And he advised the Khulafa that do not rebuild the Kaaba, leave it as it is. And his argument was that if you do it, if you rebuild the Kaaba, and you undo what the Umayyads did, then what will happen is that the Kaaba will become a plaything in the hands of the rulers. Every time a new ruler comes, merely out of spite, and to undo what the previous rulers and emperors or dynasties had done, they will continue to change the Kaaba. It will become a plaything in the hands of the rulers. So now, since the Kaaba is as it was at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, and if he was content with it, why don't you just leave it? This is why the current uh, position and the building and structure of the Kaaba is as it was during the time of the Prophet ﷺ. In any case, before that, it was different. So in the 35th year of the Prophet ﷺ's life, when the Kaaba was damaged and they, they raised the walls and rebuilt it from their halal income, this is why they fell short. When the Kaaba was complete, of course, leaving aside the Hatim area, the Quraysh now decided to the final thing remained. There was a final part of the construction, which was the restitution of the Al-Hajar Al-Aswad, the black stone. And since that was considered the holiest part of the Kaaba, the Quraysh, they fought amongst themselves. So they were bitter rivals. Their different clans were rivals as it was. But they had come together and agreed a pact in order to rebuild the Kaaba. But now, since the construction was complete, and the one great thing of distinction and honor remained, which is to restore and replace the Al-Hajar Al-Aswad, the black stone, in the corner, every clan wanted that privilege and honor. And they fell out again with one another. They began squabbling, quarreling, arguing. And 
it became so serious that there was a danger. In fact, they swore alliances against each other. And then once again became divided to such a degree that they even dipped their hands in blood to draw pacts amongst themselves that we will fight against you. We will align ourselves with this clan and we will battle against you. So there was a threat of battle in order to enjoy and gain the privilege of restoring the Al-Hajjur al-Aswad to the Kaaba. So in order to avoid conflict, a solution was suggested, which is that let us all wait to see who the first person is who enters the masjid. The first person who enters the masjid, we will make him the judge and arbitrator in this dispute. It was random. It was quite random. They all agreed. And the danger was that no matter who came, if, (coughs) there were so many clans, if the person who first entered the masjid, al-masjid al-haram, was not pleasing or satisfactory to any one clan, they would have dissented. And they would have never been able to settle on a person. Because the danger was, they, it was considered impossible for all of them to agree on one person. But they actually, they at least accepted the nominal solution. So they waited. The first person to enter the masjid after this agreement of theirs was none other than the Prophet ﷺ. And this was five years before he declared prophethood. They were all content. All of them. Since they knew his honesty, his trustworthiness, his integrity, his character, his inner and outer beauty. So they all accepted. And what was the solution of the Prophet ﷺ? He could have said... <coughs> That let me replace the Al-Hajr al-Aswad myself. Since you've all chosen me, let me place it. Nobody else needs to squabble. If I say to one person, one clan, you do it, the others will still hold it against each other. So what was the solution of the Prophet ﷺ? Did he say, I will restore the Al-Hajr al-Aswad myself? No. This was one of his unique abilities. He was a reconciler. He brought people's hearts together. He brought, he, he brought squabbling, quarreling, warring clans and tribes together. As Allah says of him, فَبِمَا رَحْمَةٍ مِّنَ اللَّهِ لِنْتَ لَهُمْ That it is of a mercy from Allah. It is of a compassion and mercy in you from Allah that you were soft. And you were lenient towards them. As I mentioned before, linta lahum is an Arabic word which comes from lana yalina, which means to become soft and lenient. But this particular phrase, linta lahum, is very similar to the words, you were lenient for them. So, it was, he had this unique ability. Even if there were four people, all of them disagreed. The Prophet ﷺ would not only settle the disagreement, but he had this miraculous ability to make everybody content too. In a judgment, two people can squabble with each other, quarrel. The judge is in a very difficult position. He's on the edge of a knife. Even if he, looking at the facts, <coughs> he is honest, truthful, upright, And he judges according to the facts. And he judges truthfully and correctly. And passes judgment. One will be the winner, the other will be the loser. 
And that loser, unless he is clean of character and heart, will feel that bitterness and will harbour resentment, continued resentment against his adversary. But he may even harbour new resentment against the judge. But the Prophet ﷺ had this unique ability to conclude the matter, to pass judgment, to even decide in favour of one person and against the others. But all the others would walk away content and happy because of what he would say to them or the novel solution that he would come up with. So on this occasion too, the Prophet ﷺ said to them that, bring me a large sheep. So they brought him a large sheet. The Prophet ﷺ told all of them to grab part of the edge, edges of the sheet. So all the chieftains of the clans grabbed part of the sheet at the edges. And then the Prophet ﷺ placed the Al-Hajr al-Aswad in the middle. And then he told all of them to carry the sheet together all the way up to the corner of the Kaaba, and then the Prophet ﷺ rightfully with his noble hands, he restored the Al-Hajr al-Aswad to the Kaaba. And everyone was content. I relate this story because it again shows how the people viewed the Prophet ﷺ, and how they recognized his truthfulness, his honesty, his character, his integrity. Throughout his life, before prophethood. And this incident was only five years before prophethood. This is why when the representative of the Persian emperor, he spoke to Al-Mughirat ibn Shu'bah one of the things which Al-Mughirat ibn Shu'bah said to him was, and this is unique, the same thing was said to all three emperors. So Al-Mughirat ibn Shu'bah he said to the representative of the Persian emperor, describing the Prophet wasallam, that Allah sent us a messenger whose truthfulness, whose lineage, and whose trustworthiness we were all well aware of. Ja'far ibn Abi Talib, the brother of Ali radiallahu when he led the group of Muslims to take refuge in Abyssinia, and there they spoke to a Najashi, and the Quraysh had sent Amr ibn al-As to collect them and bring them back. And Najashi said that I will listen to both sides, the ambassadors of the Quraysh, Amr ibn al-As, and I will also listen to the Muslims to see what they have to say. Amr ibn al-As was regarded as dahir, meaning a genius, a political genius. And he was very eloquent, well-versed. And the Sahaba radiallahu anhu were fearful that through his persuasive arguments and his political acumen, he would be able to convince Najashi of his case and the case of the Quraysh, for whom he, he came as an ambassador, and as a result, a Najashi would revoke the refugee status of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum and send them back in chains with the Quraysh delegation. So they were fearful of this. But when Amr ibn As had made his argument, the Sahaba radiallahu anhum selected Ja'far ibn Abi Talib to speak on their behalf. 
And he spoke so beautifully and eloquently. And he actually began with the words that we were a people. He described his nation. He described his people, his qawm. And then he said exactly the same thing. Then Allah sent us a messenger whose na'rifu nasabahu wa sidqahu wa amanatah. He said exactly what Al-Mughirat ibn Shu'bah said many years later. Allah sent us a messenger whose truthfulness and whose lineage and whose trustworthiness we were well aware of. And Heraclius, being an intelligent ruler and a devout Christian with knowledge of the scripture, he specifically asked Abu Sufyan, what, what, how is his lineage amongst you? And he asked this question very intelligently. Did any of you ever accuse this man of lying before he said what he said? So Abu Sufyan, despite being his enemy, he said no. Qal, Heraclius then said, فَهَلْ Does he deceive? Abu Sufyan replied that no, he doesn't deceive. Then Abu Sufyan realized and seized an opportunity to detract from the Prophet ﷺ's image and to sneak in a few words that would plant a seed of doubt in the mind of Heraclius. So he said, he was asked by Heraclius, does he deceive? So I said, no, he doesn't deceive. But then he quickly added, وَنَحْنُ مِنْهُ فِي مُدَّةٍ لَا نَدْرِي مَا هُوَ فَاعِلٌ فِيهَا However, he said to Heraclius, no, he doesn't deceive. Well, the words were, does he deceive? So Abu Sufyan said, no. However, he quickly added, we are at the moment in a truce with him. But we do not know what he will do in this truce. And in one narration of Bukhari, although it's not in this particular hadith, but it's elsewhere in Bukhari, he said, we do not know whether he may prove to be deceitful or not. Whether he may deceive. Heraclius heard what Abu Sufyan said, but then he carried on. And Abu Sufyan adds, Al, he said, وَلَمْ تُمْكِنِّي كَلِمَةٌ أُدْخِلُ فِيهَا شَيْءٍ غَيْرُ هَذِهِ الْكَلِمَةٌ Abu Sufyan added that I was not able to add any word and in one narration with which I could detract from the Prophet ﷺ I could not add any word other than this. This was the only thing that I could add. And he says in another narration I could not add any word with which I detracted from the image of the Prophet ﷺ and which I feared would not harm me even if my people quoted me. So if my companions are 30 or so, if they went away and they told anyone else that, look, Abu Sufyan didn't lie, but he did say this about Muhammad, that he doesn't deceive, but we are in a period of truce with him, and we do not know what he will do in this truce. Maybe, he, maybe he'll deceive. So Abu Sufyan was content that that word would not harm his status. People wouldn't hold that against him. They would, they would hold it against him if he lied, but not if he planted a seed of doubt in that manner. So Abu Sufyan says, I told Heraclius that he doesn't deceive, but I wasn't able to, but we do not know what he will do during this truce. And I wasn't able to 
surreptitiously enter a single word in our discussion with which I could harm the prophets except this word. Qal. Then Heraclius said, So have you fought him? Have you battled with him? Abu Sufyan said, I said yes. Qal. Heraclius then said, So how was your fight with him? So Abu Sufyan replied, I said, الحرب بيننا وبينه سجال ينال منا وننال منا War between us is alternating. We inflict loss on him and he inflicts loss on us. Sijal, which I translated as alternating. Sijal means a bucket. Or in the manner of a bucket. Sijal means in the manner of a bucket. And in one narration, it actually says, Dalwan, which means, again, a bucket, or in the manner of a bucket. How is that? The Arabs had this phrase. If you imagine a well... So people would converge on the well to draw water. And the well would have a bucket, which they would lower by a rope and then pull up and draw water. So if there was only one bucket, as would normally be the case, a large pail, the others would patiently wait. And then when one person had finished drawing his water... He, he would then, the other person would be waiting on the other side, he would then swing the bucket, which is tied to the post above the well, he would swing the bucket and pass it on courteously to the other person, saying, I've finished, here's your turn. So the bucket would be swung, and the other person would grab the bucket, draw water, and then others would be waiting. When he or she had finished, then they would swing the bucket back, to the other person. So this act of swinging from one person to the other, the Arabs, they began using this phrase to denote alternation. So if, and that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also says in the Quran, وَتِلْكَ الْأَيَّامُ نُدَاوِلُهَا بَيْنَ النَّاسِ And نُدَاوِلُهَا The word نُدَاوِل comes from دَاوِلَ يُدَاوِلَ مُدَاوِلَةً which also comes from Dawl and Dal. So it means to alternate. Some of you may say, well, the word is So the Wa comes in between, but in Dal, the Wa comes at the end. So how can they be from the same word? This is for the students of Arabic, Qalb. Just like Taqwa comes from Waqa Yaqi Wiqayatan. And taqwa should be tawakka, but again there's qalb. So you've got taqwa, there's qalb in the qaf and the wa. So وَتِلْكَ الْأَيَّامُ نُدَاوِلُهَا بَيْنَ النَّاسِ These are days which we alternate between the people. Meaning that's life. Allah Azza wa says in the Qur'an, these are days that we alternate between the people. Empires rise and fall. 
There is only one constant in the universe which is change. Life comes and then death arrives. There is life and death. There is night and day. There is a rise and fall in people's lives. There, there, is, there are moments of sadness and joy. There, are, there is loss and there is gain. That's the nature of the world. That's the nature of the universe. In an individual's life as well as in the life of nations. So empires rise and fall. People are victorious and then defeated. People vanquish others and then are vanquished themselves. Entire nations and empires disappear. People come and go. This is the ebb and flow of the lives of individuals and nations on earth. These are days that we alternate amongst the people. So one day a loss for you, the next day a victory. One day a victory for you and then a loss for you. So there is nothing permanent in the world. The only abode of permanence is the life in the hereafter. What, O Prophet of Allah, will you die and they will live on? Forever? Every soul shall taste death. So, this is a rule of life on earth. So, this alternation, these are days that we alternate. So, Dalu and Sijal, all both of these terms refer to the bucket. So, that's where it comes from. The swinging of the bucket over a well. And the Arabs began using this to simply refer to alternation. So, Abu Sufyan said, Heraclius said to him, have you fought him? He said, yes, we have fought him. So, how was your fighting with him? So, he said, Al-Harbu Bainana Sijal. War between us is alternating, it's like a bucket. He inflicts losses on us, we inflict losses on him. Why did Abu Sufyan say that? This was after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. The conquest of Mecca still hadn't happened. And this was in the late part of the sixth year or seventh year of Hijra. Prior to this conversation, apart from the military expeditions and the small excursions, the main battles that had been fought between the Quraysh of Mecca and the Muslims of Medina were three. The Battle of Badr in the second year of Hijrah, in which the Muslims scored a decisive victory. Then the Battle of Uhud, in which initially the Muslims scored a victory and the Quraysh retreated from the battlefield or began their retreat, but suddenly the tide was turned with the intervention of Khalid ibn al-Walid and because of a strategic error on the part of some of the Muslims who failed to fulfill the command and the instruction of the Prophet to the letter. Because of that strategic error and because of that intervention by Khalid ibn al-Walid, as a result of that error, the tide was turned, the Muslims suffered huge losses and in that way the battle ended. Many consider the battle of Uhud to still be a victory of Mus- for the Muslims. Others consider it a kind of stalemate at the end. But undoubtedly, many Muslims were martyred and many Muslims were injured. In fact, the Prophet ﷺ himself was injured. And after the battle ended, Abu Sufyan, who was a leader in the battle of Badr, uh, in the battle of Uhud, he shouted out that this day for the day of Badr, meaning this is our day of Uhud in retaliation for the day of Badr. And then after the battle of Uhud in the third year of Hijrah, 
the battle between the Quraysh, we're not talking about what happened in Medina between the Prophet ﷺ, the Muslims, and the other tribes. We're speaking about the Quraysh of Mecca and the Muslims of Medina. The next major battle that took place was in the fifth year of Hijrah, which was a campaign of the trench. A, a pitched battle never took place because of the defences, but there were many attempts to breach the defences, and the Muslims were defending. In those attempted breaches of the defence, some Muslims were martyred, very few, according to some narrations, only six Muslims, and similarly, a handful of the Quraysh were also killed. So, there, there were losses on both sides, minimal losses, but there was great suffering because the campaign dragged out. It was winter, it was bitterly cold, and eventually the Quraysh and their allies just uh, broke camp and left. So, that again, that, that, there was no victory for the Quraysh on that occasion, and both sides suffered some losses. So this is what Abu Sufyan relates to Heraclius, that so far our <coughs> state of war with Muhammad وسلم, is one of alternation. We've both suffered losses. But hitherto there has been no decisive victory for any one party. This is why they eventually ended up agreeing a truce in the sixth year of Hijrah, and the truce was that for set ten years we will lay down our arms. Paul, Heraclius then asked, Mada ya'murukum, what does he command you to do? Qult, I said, Yaqul, he says, he say, so Heraclius said, What does he command you to do? Qult, I replied, يقول, He says, Worship Allah alone. This was the first thing. And do not associate partners. Or do not associate anything with him in partnership. <coughs> Indeed, this was the first and primary message of the Prophet ﷺ, that worship Allah. But immediately he added, وَلَا تُشْرِكُوا بِهِ And do not associate anything with Allah. He didn't just say worship Allah. The Prophet ﷺ said, as is in the Qur'an too, throughout, in different ways it's mentioned, that it's not just the worship of Allah which suffices, but it's the worship of Allah with Tawheed, the worship of Allah with monotheism, the worship of Allah without any association, the worship of Allah with the disassociation of other rivals, idols, and equals to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, Allah. And worship Allah, Allah, worship Allah wahda alone, wala tushriku bihi shay'a, and do not associate anything with him. Because even the pagan Arabs, even the Quraysh, they worshipped Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They recognized Allah to be the supreme God. So in their pantheon of gods, in the hierarchy of gods, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in their view, occupied the highest position. And there were other gods and goddesses that they worshipped. 
But even then they protested that we are only worshipping them. مَا نَعْبُدُهُمْ إِلَّا لِيُقَرِّبُونَ إِلَى اللَّهِ زلفة. We do not worship them except so that they may draw us closer to Allah. And if ever, as Allah says in the Qur'an, وَلَئِنْ سَأَلْتَهُمْ مَنْ خَلَقَ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ لَيَقُولُنَّ اللَّهِ If you ask them, O Messenger of Allah, who created the heavens and the earth, they will most assuredly say Allah. So they recognize Allah as the Khaliq, Raziq, as the creator, the sustainer, the ultimate provider, the greatest God. They recognized that. They even recognized the term Allahu Akbar, that Allah is the greatest. And that's why they call these goddesses, Laat, Uzza and Manat, the daughters of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, even the Quraysh worshipped Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That wasn't the message of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam that just worship Allah. His message was, worship Allah wahda, alone. وَلَا تُشْرِكُوا بِهِ شَيْئًا And do not associate anything with Allah. And shirk, partnership. Shirk means partnership. Even more than association, shirk actually means partnership. And when a person worships Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and worships something or someone else, and it's not just worship, it's not about prostration or bowing or prayer and supplication. Anything which is reserved for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to devote that which is reserved for Allah, to offer that which is reserved for Allah, to divert that which is reserved for Allah, to anything or anyone else, means to make that thing or that person, that individual or that group of individuals, equals to Allah, rivals to Allah, and partners to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in that devotion, in that offering. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not accept partnership. Allah's worship is exclusive and entire for Allah. That's why he says in a hadith, He says, of all the partners, I am the most independent of all the partners of any partnership. And then the hadith continues, that whoever does a deed, and then he associates a partner with me in that deed, I abandon him and I abandon his partnership. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not accept any intention or any worship or any offering or any devotion, even 99%. It has to be exclusive for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If someone makes their nafs a partner to Allah, if someone makes something else or someone else a partner to Allah, even for a minute percentage, then it's as though they have made that person or that thing a partner for part of it and for the rest of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah accepts no partnership. This is the original meaning of shirk. Shirk, of course, later the secondary meaning is polytheism, paganism. The meaning of shirk is idolatry. But that's not the original meaning of shirk. Shirk simply means partnership. So, even Abu Sufyan recognized that the message of the Prophet ﷺ, the first and foremost message, even before he speaks about truthfulness and honesty and character and charity and prayer and chastity, 
and good manners, even before anything else, Abu Sufyan was the first to say that. And the first thing he said was, he commands us to do what? That worship Allah alone and do not associate anything with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as a partner. And in fact, this was the message of all the Anbiya alayhim And time and time again, the first message of the Prophets was, Ya qawmi abudullaha malakum min ilahin ghayrah. Oh my people, worship Allah. But he wasn't just worship Allah. Immediately the Prophets added, malakum min ilahin ghayrah. You have no God besides Allah. Then Abu Sufyan said, that he commands us to worship Allah alone and do not associate any partner with him. And abandon what your forefathers would say. And what would their forefathers say? The worship of idols. And this was a huge thing. This is why the message of the Prophet ﷺ was so courageous. He told the Quraysh, who prided themselves on the ways of their forefathers. We may not fully understand this phrase, the ways of our forefathers, especially in this day and age. But the Quraysh, even though they were pagans, they revered their elders. They may have been non-Muslims. They may have been in the days of ignorance. But they respected their parents. They revered their parents. They feared their parents. Many of the young nobles of Mecca, when they embraced Islam, even though they were from prominent noble families, their own fathers punished them in their adulthood. And this was unbelievable. An adult son was being physically imprisoned and shackled or even beaten by one's own father. And nobody dared intervene. I'm not suggesting that such behavior is to be condoned. I'm only giving you an example of how the Quraysh, despite their paganism, despite being in the days of Jahiliyyah, to what degree they looked upon their fathers and their forefathers. They revered them. And nobody would intervene. And even if they didn't physically punish them, an adult son still revered the father. If the father said, do this, he would obey. If the father prevented them, he would disobey. And that's why their detachment from their parents and their embracing Islam, despite the pressure of their families and despite the expectation of their parents, was so, was so radical, so huge, such a great move. Why it was so decisive. And why it was so remarkable in itself. It wasn't a question of the son came home one day and said, there is a man who claims to be a prophet. And this is what he says. I think what he is saying is good. I embrace him. I believe in him. And the father says, fine. Good for you. And we're very happy for you. It's your life. It's your opinion. It's your heart. It's your faith. No. If the son, they would first of all keep their, they would conceal their faith. And if ever the parents found out, 
If the father found out, they would fear them, they would dread them, they would flee home. And we're not talking about teenagers, we're talking about adults with children themselves. I mentioned earlier about, uh, some time ago, about the Prophet Wasallam <coughs> that he had so many uncles. And his grandfather, Abdul Muttalib, had a huge number of sons. And he was a leader of Makkah at the time. And even though the sons recognized that our father, you see, the clans, the Quraysh, were divided into clans. And Banu Hashim was the most prominent clan at the time because of the leadership of Abdul Muttalib. He was regarded as Shaykh Quraysh, the elderly man of Quraysh, the leader of the Quraysh. So the sons never thought that our father is the chief of all the clans of Quraysh, and we are an honored clan, and we are ten brothers. We can do what we want. We can behave how we want. Abdul Muttalib, despite being old, and despite his sons being adults with children of them, for themselves, they would sit around him respectfully in the shade of the Kaaba. He would lean against the Kaaba on the couch and bedding. And his sons would sit in front of him in a semicircle. And they would sit humbly and respectfully. And he was an old grandfather. He was an old man. And the words are, nobody, nobody, not even amongst the children, not even amongst the sons, would dare to sit on the bedding and the couch of Abdul Muttalib. That was his throne. Except for Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. As a child he would come and sit there. And his uncles would try to shoo him away. Saying don't sit there. Abdul Muttalib would, would turn to his son. Uh, his grandson the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Caress him, stroke him, bring him closer. And say to them leave him. For this son of mine will have a great state in the future. So that was considered unique. That only the Prophet ﷺ had that honor and privilege of sitting on the cushion of Abdul Muttalib. But the point which I wish to make is, see how his sons treated him. They dreaded to sit on his couch. And they were, they were still in the days of Jahiliyyah. Allahu Akbar. Parents were revered. Grandparents were revered. Forefathers were revered. This is why throughout the Qur'an, the phrases are, why should we abandon what our forefathers have said? Not just for the Prophet ﷺ, but also for the previous nations. Every nation has had this tradition of respecting, of revering, of honoring their parents, their forefathers and their ancestors. And their ways and traditions. This is why it was such a great thing. For the Prophet ﷺ to actually say to them, Abandon what your forefathers used to say. That was huge. But he said that. And so Abu Sufyan said to them, said to Heraclius that this is what he says, And abandon what your forefathers say. Not specifically about idolatry. <coughs> There's only a few words left. And he added, and he instructs us to prayer, the kind of prayer that we know. And truthfulness. And chastity. And bonding the ties of blood and kinship.
And these were things which they recognized. The Sahaba radiallahu anhum recognized the beauty of these teachings. Truthfulness of prayer, of charity. In another narration, the words are of charity. Of chastity. Well, afaf, chastity. Afaf means abstention. Abstention from anything which is haram. And not just anything which is haram. The word afaf in Arabic means abstention from dishonorable things. So not just from that which is forbidden, but from anything which may be unclear, forbidden or not forbidden, which may be doubtful, or which may actually be lawful, but which is dishonorable. So afaf, although one of the meanings is chastity, a better word would be abstention. So he commands us to abstention. Abstention from what? Anything which is unchaste, anything which is dishonorable, anything which is unworthy, anything which is unseemly. He commands us to abstain from such unseemly, dishonorable, unlawful things. And, wasila, he commands us to practice silatul rahim, which is bonding the ties of blood, bonding the ties of kinship. And again, this is one of the core central teachings of Islam, honoring and respecting one's family, members of one's family. It's such a great thing. And this is one of the beautiful teachings of Islam. And you, you will find that even those who may not necessarily pray, those who may not necessarily fast, those who may not necessarily fulfill all the obligations of religion, the beauty of the teachings of kin, family, blood, and of silatul rahim has trickled down and has filtered down into the culture of the Muslims. Family plays such a huge part. I recently read uh, an article about an individual who was quite, well, rather than give that example, uh, it was an article about an individual who made a comment about what he saw in Muslims. So rather than give that example, Let me just say, not just one individual, but many have commented on the culture of Muslim families. Families are a tight-knit group. How families look after each other. How families care for each other. And that is a tradition of Islam. And Silatul Rahim, Allahu Akbar. I've given that example of one of my father's teachers, which I still find remarkable. And And my father's teacher, he was his teacher in India, but he resided here. And my father, both my father and his teacher have passed away. May Allah have mercy on them both. And my father told me, by that time his teacher had passed away, but he gave me an example of Salatul Rahim. And he said that um, this teacher of mine, his sister, sorry, this teacher of mine, a family member, had, uh, as his traditional in culture, his daughters had married into the family. So they were married to their cousins. And both his daughters were divorced by this teacher's, by the scholar's nephews. 
So the scholar's daughters were married to the nephews. Both daughters were divorced by the nephews. Then, since he was here, the family, after having divorced his daughters, they, out of spite, also claimed all the land and properties that were owned. They were minimal, but any land that he had inherited uh, or that was his rightful property was all confiscated and taken over and illegally possessed uh, by the same nephews and their parents and family members. And they abused them and, as you're aware, what happens in situations such as this. My father says, remarkably, every year in Ramadan, my teacher would send money to these family members. So I said to him in shock, my father related to me, that I said to him in shock, that they've divorced your daughters, they've broken your family, they've illegally uh, taken possession of your lands and property, they've abused you, harmed you, slandered you in every way, They've left no stone unturned in hurting and harming you. Why do you wish to send them money? They've taken all your other wealth anyway. He would send it as a, as a gift in Ramadan. He would send it to other family members. He would send it to them as well. So his reply was that what they have done to me is between them and Allah. But I still have a duty to practice Silatul Rahim. And that's why it's mentioned in a hadith. This is a beautiful example of the hadith in which the Prophet ﷺ says, لَيْسَ الْوَاصِلُ بِالْمُكَافِرِ The keeper of family ties is not the reciprocator. Keeper of family ties is not the reciprocator. Rather, the keeper of family ties is one who when his family ties are severed and cut, he joins them. To reciprocate is not Silatul Rahim. So if an uncle of mine or a family member of mine is good to me, I'm good to him. If he's nice to me, I'm nice to him. If he gives me something, I give him something. So all I'm doing is repaying, all I'm doing is reciprocating, all I'm doing is reflecting his behavior. If he's good, I'm good. If he's nice, I'm nice. The Prophet ﷺ says, someone who merely reciprocates, someone who merely reflects, someone who does like for like, he is not the keeper of family ties. He's not the one who practices Silatul Rahim. The one who truly practices Silatul Rahim is that when other family members cut their ties and sever their cords, he joins them. He is a practice of Silatul Rahim. And this is something which is part of our religion and should be part of our culture. And it was, it was, till recently, Allahu Akbar, you will see, you will see people looking after their parents, looking after their mothers and their grandparents, devotedly, till death, devoting all their wealth to their parents, till death. Now, 
we are constantly reminded that be the phrases be nice to your children because they will choose your retirement home. Subhanallah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us the ability to act upon the teachings of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, teachings whose beauty and whose worth and value even the pagans recognized. And as Abu Sufyan said, he instructs us to prayer, to truthfulness, to abstention, wasila, and to the bonding of the ties of blood. I end with this. We will continue with the remainder of the hadith next week, insha'Allah. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala abdihi wa rasooli nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Subhanakallahum wa bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa ant. Nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadhul Haq and has been brought to you by Al-Kotha Productions. For additional lectures and products, please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on 0044-121-771-3777 or by email via sales at akstore.com. Produced under license by Alcotha Productions, all rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author. Any unauthorized distribution, broadcasting or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright.